Good day, everyone. Uh, let me add my welcome to you, especially if you are new or visiting with baptisms. Welcome to the family. And welcome to you if you are new just to checking church out or Jesus out. Each week, we really do meet people who are doing this for the very first time. And so it might be helpful for you to just hear a bit about how we operate here. For 25 years now, it's been our practice just to work through the Bible bit by bit. Uh, different books, but just kind of start with one and then the next bit and the next bit and the next bit. And the reason that that is important to know is, um, well, we do it for what, one reason is we actually don't have anything that worthwhile and impressive for you to hear. Uh, speak for myself anyway, nothing inspiring. Uh, if you want the inspiring uh, speaker, that's, that's not this church. But what we do have is, as Jamie's reminded us, is God's words. And as we just track through page after page after page, it means the Bible sets the agenda, not us. And the reason I tell you that is if it were up to us, to be honest, this morning might be a passage that I'd skip over. Uh, Last week was great, next week we get to washing of the feet. This week, it's got some big, hard, heavy stuff in it. And if you've been looking at it through the week, you'll know that. Uh, but, But we want to trust that every word from God is a good word. And so I just want to own that up front, that this is a heavier kind of week. And some of you are thinking, oh man, this was the week that I invited my friend. Uh, this is the week that, you know, my family came along. We just want to let God in the Bible set the agenda and trust that it'll be good for us. So before we dive in, let me pray for us. Uh, Lord God, uh, we, we want to thank you that you are not the God of our imagination, who would be so small and weak, and really just us, which is unimpressive. We thank you that you are you, almighty God, that you've not just uh, remained hidden, but that you have actually revealed yourself and made yourself known. As we've just heard here, a man show up saying that to see him is to see God. To listen to his words is to listen to God. And so as we come to them, please... Give us ears to really hear and please do a, a softening work in us by this word we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we do track through this Gospel of John, we are just over halfway. And so it might come as a bit of a surprise to you to know that we've actually just heard Jesus give his very last public sermon. And we're only just over halfway through the book. From here, he's going to retreat into his disciples. Now think about how many times Jesus has preached over his three years of travelling around his public ministry, so many sermons, and he comes to this final sermon that he knows will be the last. You know, what's it going to be, Jesus? Make it good, we might say, from the armchair. Well, it's there for us in verse 44 to 50, but let me sum it up like this. Actually, let me... Let me point out what it doesn't say. It doesn't say, all right, would you just go and love each other? Would you just go and be kind to each other? Would you just treat each other as you want to be treated? Now, of course, Jesus does teach that elsewhere, but as he comes to this moment where he summarises in what he knows is his last sermon, his ministry, he says two big things about himself. He says, I am God. As you look at me, you look at the one who sent me. And secondly, I am the saviour of the world, the whole world. That has been at the heart of the Christian message from the very get-go and might it continue to be the heartbeat of this church as we hold out 
the heart of what Jesus is on about. He is God, the Saviour. But this summary actually raises something of a problem. And I want to use problem kind of loosely, lightly, in inverted commas. It's not a top-of-mind problem for us as we think about our problems we've got, our questions that we've got. Ours are like, well, God, how come so much evil? How come so much suffering? Our problems we've got, well, God, why don't you make yourself clearer, more obvious? The problem that's on view here is this. Why was Jesus so overwhelmingly rejected by the Jewish people? If the Jews had been long awaiting their Messiah, uh, which is one that they believed a king and a saviour that God would send, who would bring the light, who would take them out of darkness, long waiting, and then Jesus comes as the light, claiming to be the light, with a demonstration of God's power on him so that he is like no other man who has ever lived. Why then was Jesus, the Jew, so thoroughly rejected by the Jewish people? You know, it's not like um, an outsider trying to get in with the in-group. It's not like a Greens politician trying to be accepted by the Liberal Party and rejected. It's not like an art teacher wanting to get over and in with the science department and rejected. This is the most Jewish of Jewish men rejected by the Jews, a son of Abraham from the line of David. But we were warned from this from the opening page of this gospel. Do you remember chapter 1 in the prologue? He came to his own, but his own did not receive him. And so think about the problem that this creates for the early preachers of Christianity as they now walk around the ancient world going, Jesus is God the Saviour. People go, yeah, that Jewish man who was thoroughly rejected by his own Jewish tribe, they killed him. And you want me to believe the man that not even his own people would believe? Do you see, this was something of a problem that the first, or the, the apostles, the eyewitnesses of Jesus, spent actually a bit of time in the New Testament addressing, and this is one of those parts. And so we just need to own, this is actually dealing with a particular issue in a moment of history about a particular group of people that is some step removed from us. But I want to draw the connections to, to show you just how profound the implications are for our lives as we go along. So it does need some patience, it does need some hard work uh, and as much as possible if you can look at these words for yourself you can test whether what I'm saying is really there. plan is to take us through it in two parts because the passage gives two big reasons for the overwhelming rejection of Jesus. Number one, the Jews rejected him because they could not believe. They could not believe. Verse 37 is the start there. Even after Jesus had performed so many signs in their presence, they still would not believe in him. We'll come back to this. But John now takes us to a deeper reason for the unbelief, verse 38. This, this unbelief, this rejection, was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet. Lord, who's believed our message and who has the arm of the Lord been revealed? What's being said here is this question of the Jews, of Israel rejecting a Jewish messenger is not new. We had two readings there, the first one from Isaiah. What may not be obvious if you're new to these things is those writings are some 735 years BC, before Jesus, like eight centuries before Jesus comes along, where the prophet Isaiah asked that question, who's believing? Seemingly no one. 
in chapter 53. He asks that question, it's quoted here. But it's not unexpected that Isaiah and his ministry all this time ago was set out to fail, really. Because at his commissioning, which we did have read in chapter 6, where Isaiah comes into the throne room of the living God, and it wasn't the moment where he took a selfie with God to put on Instagram. Did, did you catch it? Uh, he hit the floor. Woe is me, said Isaiah, as he comes into something of the presence of God. Well, God atones for his sin. He raises him up. He says, go and be my messenger. What's the message? A message that will harden the hearts of those who hear it. Israel, God's own people, will reject and harden their hearts. That was Isaiah's ministry some eight centuries before Jesus. Now we, sh- we rock up to the first century of the Gospels and we find, John chapter 12, that Jesus has actually come to continue the ministry of Isaiah. Actually, more properly, to fulfil the ministry of Isaiah. As we see there, verse 39, the unbelief of these Jews, of the people of the nation of Israel... For this reason, they could not believe. Because as Isaiah says elsewhere, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts. So they can neither see with their eyes, nor understand with their hearts, nor turn, and I would heal them. Now, if if you're wondering what's being said here, the people who reject Jesus, these Jews, could not believe in Jesus because it had been long ago prophesied that they wouldn't. Now, it's important, again, to note that we're dealing with a specific moment in salvation history. Uh, We can't just lift... The Bible's not just a bunch of kind of spiritual, pithy sayings that you can lift out and stick on a meme. It's an unfolding plan that shows how God, through history, through centuries, is working to bring salvation to the world. And so, paying attention to where we're up to in that track is really important. Jesus has rocked up, the Messiah's rocked up, but he's not yet died. Okay, And now Jesus, as we saw last week, is going to talk about his death more and more, only halfway through the account. Verse 24, Very truly I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Life will come from death. Verse 27, My soul is troubled, says Jesus, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No. It was for this very reason that I came to this hour. Verse 32. And when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. 34. The Son of Man must be lifted up. Jesus must die a specific death. Jesus was not going to die as a result of a late night mugging. He was not going to die because he fell off a ladder. Jesus must die as he is crucified, lifted up on a cross. Why? Well, because the cross in the Jewish scriptures was was the symbol of being under the greatest curse of God. It was the death that most represented being under the judgment of God, under the curse of God. Anyone who is hung to a pole is under the curse of God, says the Jewish scriptures. 
Well, as we know, Jesus is not there for his own sin. He is not bearing his own curse. He was sinless. Just read through the accounts. Jesus is on this cross as a substitute, taking the curse of God upon himself so that those who do deserve it might be spared. Jesus is laying down his life as the shepherd for his sheep. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. It was critical that Jesus die on a cross under the curse of God. But how would this death come about? You don't go and nail yourself to a cross. How's that going to happen? Well, the Romans, who were the only ones who could crucify, they weren't going to crucify Jesus. They had no interest in this you know, kind of hick from out of town, okay, he's gathering a bit of a following, doing some magic tricks around the place and and talking about some Jewish scriptures. So what? Who cares, says the Roman superpower. I mean, if he had a sword strapped to his side and he was on a war horse and he was gathering an army to overthrow Rome, that would be a different story, but he wasn't. He was no threat to Rome, they didn't care. The only way that Jesus would be crucified was if his own people, the Jewish people, would reject him and play the political game with Rome and and so kind of force their hand and use them as their hangman, get their man cursed on a cross. And so it happens. But not as a failure to God's overarching plan but rather we find as the very fulfilment of it, as the only way to bring salvation, the forgiveness of sins to all, as a substitute would take it to all people. And so the people moving around Jesus that we're reading about right now, God leaves them and confirms them and further hardens their hearts so that they would reject him, that he might die as the saviour of the world. Verse 39, for this reason, they could not believe. Now, let me anticipate a possible, in fact, probable objection in the room right now. Like, well, okay, God needed a substitute to die under his curse and that was going to happen because the Jews were going to do it. So God worked all of that. So that's okay. But why blame the Jews for doing this? Is God just getting them to do his dirty work? After all, they could not believe. What chance did they have against God? If they couldn't believe because he's prophesied it. We'll come to addressing this objection in a moment because the passage does actually. But it's worth just pausing here and reflecting on our hearts. Uh, Particularly where our sympathies are at with God or not. Uh, if I, this is a made-up example, but if, um, if Bree, my wife's boss, were to give me a call and say, hey, Bree hasn't showed up to work today and actually I think she's gone down to the beach to get some sun and some surf and I'm really ticked, she's going to lose a job. Um, my initial reaction would be to go, of course she's not at the beach. She's responsible. She's committed. I'd actually be really worried if she hasn't showed up. Why? Well, I've known her for 24 years now. 
uh, I experience what she is like and that is not in her character and so I would not jump to that explanation, I would be wondering what's really happened because my sympathies are with her, my wife. Now, if it was back when she was 16 when I first met her and she was living in Port Macquarie and a school principal rang me up saying, I think she's bludged school to go to the beach, where's Karina? That would be a different story, wouldn't it? <laughs> You're nodding. She's grown, she's changed, she's, she's a responsible person. The point here is, where do your sympathies lie with God? Are they with him or are they with humanity? Basically, your two options. If your sympathies are with humanity in that camp, then it's you hear a challenging teaching about God like this and you say, whoa, that sounds horrible, that sounds unfair. God, you, you better have a very good reason for doing this. Justify yourself. And I better like and understand that explanation. Because our sympathies is with humanity. When our sympathies are with God, we come across teaching that might be hard, and it's okay to own that, but we go, my sympathies with God, this must be true, I take it to be true, and even good. And so humbly ask God to help me appreciate why it's true and good more and more. Do you see, they are very different heart positions with God and it's just worth owning where we're at. Can't fool God, no point trying to fool ourselves. And here's the thing that we've been seeing. The Bible gives us very good reason for our sympathies to be with God. That He is good. Why? Last week. That He has so loved the world that He has sent His one and only Son on a rescue mission and at infinite cost to himself, has died to take my sin, our sin, to make me forgiven, pure, blessed. Oh, he's good. And so now as I come to other teachings, other parts of the Bible which challenge and stretch, I start with, he's good. Now help me understand why it is. The Bible is clear from cover to cover. John's actually been hitting this all the way through. God is sovereign over our salvation. That means all controlling. You know, it's not like he gets us 95% of the way or, or rolls, you know, five of the Yahtzee dice or whatever it is and just needs one more to top it up. He's altogether in control. Jesus said in chapter 6, verse 44, do you remember, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them and I'll raise them up on the last day. It's the plain teaching of the Bible that God is sovereign over salvation. Here, we find that some could not believe. Now, for the second big reason that the passage gives, which actually continues to speak to our objection. The second reason people here don't believe is because they don't want to believe. They don't want to. Verse 37... Even after Jesus had performed so many signs in their presence, they still would not believe in him. Often uh, smuggled into the objection that we have that God would, would harden people's hearts and that people couldn't believe, smuggled into that objection is this thinking that 
God is hardening the hearts of people that were soft. But he goes, nah, harden you so I can use you for my... That these are warm-hearted people to God who, who, who sincerely want to reach out and know God. And God goes, no, nah, I haven't chosen you. Not at all. Never, ever, ever does the Bible picture God as turning away anyone that would turn to him for mercy. Never. And this is where the Bible calls our bluff on our view on ourselves. We think we're pretty good people, not perfect, but good at heart. The Bible just puts a mirror up and says, have a good look. There are no soft hearts toward God. We're all hardened by nature towards him. This hardening is not God going to soft people and turning them away. And actually notice here just how much responsibility is put on these people. The people who could not believe are the same people who persisted in not wanting to believe. The people who eventually could not believe are the people who over and over and over again did not want to believe. Look at verse 37 again. Even after Jesus had performed so many signs in their presence, signs is the word that we might say miracles, John says signs. Miracles. You know, Jesus has turned water into wine. Jesus has healed the sick, the lame, the blind. He has fed 5,000 people with a kid's happy meal. He's even just in chapter 11 raised a dead man. And even his greatest skeptics don't deny it. We might call them miracles. John calls them signs because they're supposed to point us somewhere. But notice this. Seeing does not necessarily mean believing. It didn't when Jesus was on earth. And we, we keep kind of thinking, gee, if only God would do something spectacular, if people could, then more people would believe. I mean, imagine... If humans could be um, so advanced in our technology that we could build this device with big bits of glass that we could point out into the dark night sky and now actually start to see these, these things we'll call planets. And then we're, then we're actually going to see whole vast galaxies. And it's just, we're going to be able to look through this thing, let's call it a telescope, and we're going to be so wowed, surely... Surely everyone who could see that is then going to go, wow, there must be a powerful creator behind all of this. <laughs> Seems like the cleverer we get, the more hardened we are to wanting there to be a creator. See, that's the thing, is we just don't want God. We don't want there to be a creator, because if there's no creator, I'm my own king, queen, I live however I want. If there is a God, a creator, ooh, that equation changes, I don't want that. Imagine if God would miraculously heal my friend of cancer. That I could sit with her and just pray, God, take this cancer away. And it just went immediately and obviously. Then she would believe. Not necessarily, according to John. Pray for your friend. God is gracious. But faith that is grounded on sight, on the miraculous is inadequate. It won't hold up. We'll reach for all kinds of reasons to rationalise our unbelief and we'll feel fine about it. It'll make sense. 
the Gospel of John, the Bible, puts two twin truths out there. God is completely in control and sovereign over everything, over every human heart and how they respond to him. Every person is 100% responsible in how they respond to Jesus. Who's responsible? Is it God or is it me? Yes, says the Bible. And it is just no good to go, ah, oh, this is just some puppet game that God's playing. This is like my 12-year-old who's telling me about his D&D game last night, his campaign that he's made up and what all the characters are going to do that he's going to control. That's not reality. And we know that, right? We know that we are making real responsible choices. Every single one of you are here today because you chose to be. Even if someone dragged you along, you chose not to fight back so hard so as to not come. We know that this is not just fatalism, we're making real decisions. These people didn't want Jesus. And so can I point out the warning that this is, for all of us, but a particular group among us? We love that there are so many people among us checking Jesus out. Maybe for the first time. Um, weeks, months you've been doing that, maybe for the first time in a long time. We're so excited that you're here and, and just praying that you would come to see Jesus, embrace Jesus as the rest of us Muppets have. There's a, there's a group among us, though, who have been with us for years and you have not committed yourself to Jesus. You've heard all of this stuff so many times. You could probably answer the tricky questions. And yet, you continue to hold Jesus at arm's length. Maybe saying, I'll get to it. And I've, I speak to you. I've heard people say, I'll get to it on my deathbed. Here's the great warning for you. Those, as we see you, who persist in rejecting Jesus, one day ultimately are unable to respond to Jesus. The persistent unbelief will ultimately lead to being unable to come. And Jesus, though he says his purpose for coming into the world was to save the world, not to condemn the world, he does say, verse 48, there is a judgment for those who reject him. So catch this. The, the thing that we're dealing with right now this morning and every week and in other settings here as we read and unpack this word, it's not like a uni lecture. It's not like a TED talk. It's much longer than a TED talk, isn't it? It's not some interesting information on YouTube. As we hear the word of God, you are either being softened by it or hardened. There is no neutral third space. And so, as, as we come to it, it just calls for us to, to be responsible with what we're hearing and, and, and the, the response that we make to it. But, can I say to you, this group of people, in the vein of Jesus' mission, can I repeat his invitation there, verse 44? Whoever believes in me does not believe in me only, but in the one who sent me. The one who looks at me is seeing the one who sent me. As you, as you deal with God, that all hangs on what you do with Jesus. 
say, but I can't see him. I'm not there. It has been recorded for us. People have died for this, to record it, that we might actually see him in these pages. I've come into the world as a light so that the one who believes in me should not stay in darkness. Do not delay one more day. You might have delayed for years. Hear the warning and hear the invite. Don't delay another day. Receive God's invitation to come to Jesus, your Saviour, to be restored into relationship with him. There's a final dimension of unbelief given in this passage that I'll head towards finishing with, and this actually serves as a warning for all of us. And it's the warning of misplaced glory. You see it there in verse 42 and 43. Uh, Yet at the same time, many, even among the leaders, believed in him. But because of the Pharisees, they would not openly acknowledge their faith for fear they would be put out of the synagogue. Now, what are we dealing with with this group of people? Well, uh, to be upfront, um, people will argue both ways. Here, I'll give you what I think is going on here. Um, we are dealing with people who are actually expressing their deep unbelief in Jesus and rejection of him. But hang on, doesn't it say at the same time some believed in him? Yes. But as we've been reading John, we've been seeing that there's a kind of belief, there's a kind of faith which is completely inadequate. It might be happy to get up near and close to Jesus. It might even like Jesus and agree with Jesus, but it stops short of embracing Jesus for who he is and surrendering my life to him. I mean, you'll chase it up later, but in John chapter 8, you find the same expression. Even as he spoke, some believed in him. Keep reading, by the end of it, they've got stones in their hand to kill him. It's possible to have a belief in Jesus that is seriously deficient. And so I'm going to express this as believing rejection. Believing rejection. This is why it is a particular danger for those who have been up close with Jesus. The form that it takes here, you see, is that they do not want to be put out of the synagogue, which was the Jewish establishment that defined who was in, who was welcomed, who was part of the community, the family. If you're in the synagogue, you were. If you're on the outside, you were on the cold. And so to openly stand with Jesus would mean losing the comfort of acceptance. It would lead to being cancelled. It was an issue in the first century, and I'm sure I don't have to work hard to convince you it is such a relevant issue for us today that to stand with Jesus risks being cancelled. I don't know about you, I reckon possibly if you're my age and especially older, but I do put myself in this category. Do you increasingly feel like a foreigner in the country that you were born and raised in? Because I do. I increasingly feel like an outsider in this country, the only place that I've ever known, like I'm from another planet, in a way that I didn't further back. And for some of you who have lived longer, I can see you nodding. 
Our country has always been lost, has always needed Jesus. But because the gospel had such an effect on Western countries, we lived in a context, a culture that still had so much that was Christian about it. And so the worst that I experienced as a kid, at high school even, was being ignored for being a Christian or a little bit of being made fun of. I was never excluded. Never excluded by people who had no interest in Jesus. They just kind of had a bit of fun and then we just got on with life. But how things are changing and shifting. Um, There are all sorts of situations where we as followers of Jesus are increasingly, it's not just coming, it's here. And I'm talking to some of you and just hearing how hard a thing it is, especially in the workplace. Some people say to you, oh man, Jesus, a pastor, it must be so hard for you. You could be locked up for what you're saying. I think it's so much harder for you in the workplace. So much harder. And here's what I think we must all do in order to stand with Jesus at those particularly big moments. Here's what I'm doing maybe not as much as I should, but semi-regularly pleading with the Lord that he would form such deep belief, deep faith in me, that when it does come to those big moments where it is really clear that I'm either standing with Jesus and being cast out or being accepted by the establishment, that he would give me his spirit, his gift of faith to stand with Jesus. And then the prayer keeps going, and so help me to do with all those little moments where I'm tempted to compromise before those big ones. It's a prayer to actually believe Jesus and what he says, verse 25. Like there's the believe in, but there's actually believe him, take him at his word here, that anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Lord, help me so that from the perspective of 20 years from now, 50 years from now, 10 billion years from now, every single moment that I did stand with Jesus, rejected by the establishment, will be a moment that I never regret. None of us will regret a single moment of standing with Jesus. So, Lord, help me. I want to be careful here because we, we will do this imperfectly. We are doing it imperfectly. Lest you think, oh man, I went into work on Monday and it was the lunchroom and we're all talking about what we did on the weekend and I talked about the beach and sports and nothing about church. Oh, is this? We will bumble and stumble as we stand for Jesus. But do let it be a moment to reflect on your heart and repent. Of repent of, of these smaller moments that... When it comes to the bigger moment, we we, we want, Lord, to be able to stand for you in these smaller moments. We're going to do it imperfectly. But notice the big thing, there's a misplaced love behind this, what I'm calling, believing rejection. That we all must search our hearts and repent of. Verse 43, why didn't they want to be cancelled? For they loved human praise more than the praise from God. The literal translation, as our daily reading notes told us this week, man, they're really helpful. If you don't have a paper copy or an email copy, just a little bit to work through each week, get it, super helpful. It was pointed out that the literal translation behind this English here is that they loved the glory that comes from people 
more than the glory that comes from God. This is a love of glory issue. The glory of people is comfort and success and acceptance, prestige, influence, power, glorious. The glory of God is the cross. Is the most almighty, amazing man to have ever lived, suffering, rejected as the saviour of the world. And so how do we continue to batter our hearts where we want to love glory from people rather than God? How do we do that? Well, there's the answer right there. We keep looking at true glory, the cross. Which is why we have been, and God willing, always will be a church who just keeps preaching the cross. Because there is true glory that as we, as we dine out and push into that more and more, shapes and shifts our values so that we actually would see glory for what it is. This week in my home, uh, the kids were watching a movie called True Spirit, uh, which is a movie that tells the true story of Jessica Watson. Do you remember her, Jessica Watson? I remember it at the time, 2009, an Australian sailor who became the youngest person to, to actually sail around the whole world aged just 16. So this movie's telling that story and, and, you, and you just see what that must have been like and the challenges that she pushes through and it's just amazing. 16. Uh, many would say, wow, what a glorious achievement. She's got hundreds of thousands of Insta followers. And then it occurred to me as I'm watching it, I've, I've got an almost 16-year-old daughter. From the perspective of the cross, do you know what truly is glorious? A 16-year-old girl walking into her school to tell her non-Christian friends about Jesus. That is glorious. And God praises that. The teenager who is working to invite their friends to flip side to hear about Jesus, to youth about Jesus, who is risking their rejection, that is glorious and God praise it, praises it. The family who loves sport, is gifted sport, is on track for glory in sport but says no to regular Sunday morning sport because it would take them out of church far too much. That is glorious and God praises it. The wife or the husband or the mother, father, son, daughter, brother, sister who lives in a home where it is just daily so hard to follow Jesus but continues with the hardship. That is glorious and God praises it. The person, and especially in our context, the woman who remains single all her days, not because she's got this gift of singleness and not interested in marriage, she longs to be married. But because, for whatever reason, it hasn't happened and she's not going to just jump in with anyone, she wants to honour Jesus, remain single, that is glorious and God praises it. Those of you who serve the work of the gospel here in ways that none of us have any idea about, never will, unless you get here at 6am on a Sunday to see people who are doing stuff you'll never see. Unless you duck into someone's home at midnight through the week to see the stuff that you'll never see. As you do work for the gospel that isn't involved in, oh, wow, how good was the music this morning? Oh, how good was the sermon? God sees it. 
It is glorious and he praises it. Friends, this is a warning for all of us to, to check our hearts and where they lie, our sympathies, where we're chasing true glory. Let me finish owning that this is a heavy passage with warnings for us not to delay one more day being unwilling to come to the Lord. To pursue the right glory, come what may. But it's also a glorious part of the Bible. Why? Because it says what the Bible keeps saying, God is in control over all things. Even the most evil rejection of his son was no surprise to him and he worked it for the ultimate good. So again, whatever is going on in your life, whatever hard and evil thing, it's not escaped God. He's in control. This is a deep comfort. And that as we stand with Jesus to give our lives to him, God really delights. Like He really delights. And so might we more and more pursue that glory as we head to that day soon when we trust we will hear these words from him, well done, good and faithful servant. Come and share in your master's happiness. I want to invite us to take a moment to reflect on what we've heard, to pray, maybe, in light of what we've just heard. Take this moment, the band will then lead us in a couple more songs to finish. <laughs>